This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everyone. It's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode. He said, you know, I thought that Jason Kander was one of the most together friends that I had, had it all figured out, and it turned out that he was amazingly fucked up with PTSD. Uh, and then he said, you know, amazing book. And Al sent me that and said, is this okay? And I said, if you do not tweet that word for word, we are no longer friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Jason Kander, who served as an intelligence officer in Afghanistan and as Secretary of State for Missouri before his Senate campaign in 2016 catapulted him onto the national stage. In his new memoir, Invisible Storm, Jason talks about how he decided to step away from an extremely promising political career to focus on his mental health. Uh, Jason, it's been a, a, probably a, a little over a year since we last had you on Burn the Boats. You were in the middle of writing Invisible Storm then. It is great to have you back. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. I love your Twitter bio. I, I love your whole Twitter account, especially the late night, oh, ask me anythings. But in your bio, it says, sorta ran for president. <laughs> I know mm -hmm. you've told the story a million times about sitting down with President Obama uh, when he encouraged you to do it. But I'd like to get inside your head and get a sense of what it feels like when the president of the United States is telling you you could be next in line. Uh, it's pretty wild, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, particularly because where I was at that moment, I'll go through kind of where I was personally and where I was professionally. Where I was personally was, I was not doing well. Um, I wasn't admitting that to myself yet. Uh, you know, my, my PTSD had been untreated, undiagnosed, unacknowledged by me for at that point, nine years, uh, no, 10 years at that point. And I was really struggling. And so what was happening was I was heading toward a campaign for president, but you know, look in 2018, who wasn't Ken? I mean, it just, everybody seemed to be getting ready to run for president. Um, but I was one of them. I was, there was a couple dozen of us and I was one of them. And what was happening for me was my self-confidence throughout that entire decade never flagged. Like my confidence in my own abilities, I was absolutely convinced. And to be honest, I still look back and kind of think I was right about this. And this is an egotistical thing to say, but arrogant thing to say anyway. I was convinced I was the best politician in the country in terms of I was the most talented. And I really believed that. And what was really wild about that is that juxtaposed against that, was that I had really no regard for myself as a human being. My self-esteem was going in opposite direction from my self-confidence. And I was doing very well politically. I was 36, 37 years old. 
And I was a legitimate potential candidate for president of the United States through kind of a serendipitous series of events. I mean, I had lost my race for the U.S. Senate, but just barely lost it. And I had been in a race nobody thought I should have been competitive in. And, you know, and then some other things had happened that people just knew who I was. And they were like, oh, this guy got a lot of people who voted for Trump to vote for him without pretending to be like Trump. So that's kind of how I ended up there. And then I was really stringing together endorphin highs to avoid myself. And I didn't realize that's what I was doing. The way I would have said it to people very close to me at that time was, I feel good as long as I'm going, as long as I keep going. Because what was going on in my head was really unpleasant. And so if I was giving a big speech or I was in a really big high stakes interview or a donor meeting with a donor who could you know, really, really open things up, I was very engaged. I was very present. But all the rest of the time with my family, you know, in between any of that was like a sullen gray haze. And frankly, it was more than a gray haze. Sometimes it was getting pretty dark. So President Obama had said he'd you know, like to talk to me. I came out to see him. And I was thinking at that point, uh, well, you know, I'm probably going to get 15 minutes, me and him and like a staffer or two, and I'll get a chance. I'll be this. This is him affording me the opportunity to make an ask of him. So I was ready to ask him to like maybe headline a fundraiser for the organization I had started, Let America Vote. So I was very surprised when I get there and it becomes evident right away that it's just me and him and there's really no clock on this deal. Like he shut the door and we're just hanging out in his office and he's not in a hurry. Like we're chit-chatting about all sorts of things. There wasn't like, okay, what do you need? You know, it wasn't like that. And then by the end of it, it was clear like, We had just had a very real conversation about the possibility of me running for president. And what would that look like? What advice did he have? Did he think, you know, what were my obvious disadvantages, my obvious advantages? And uh, yeah, by the end of it, he said to me, he kind of summarized the whole thing by going through a bunch of the other potential candidates and not like knocking anybody, but really listing off for me a realistic take on what everybody's advantages were that I didn't have. Most of them were much better known than me. A lot of them had much more access to donors and that kind of stuff. And, you know, they had been more than a statewide elected official who wasn't a senator, right? Like, so then he just kind of concludes by says, but Jason, you have what I had. You're the natural. And that was a big deal to me. So what it felt like was validation of this outsized self-confidence that I had. It made me feel validated about that. But also, it was something that my self-esteem really needed at that moment, which was, I was kind of careening downwards that way. And it was very validating to have my political hero say, no, I don't think this is crazy. Uh, He wasn't saying, like, you're my guy, my only guy. He was saying, like, you know, you're one of the people who should do this and who should really consider it. And uh, that was a big deal for me. It didn't mess with you at all. I'm just trying to get in that space between self-esteem and self-confidence because I've had one or two friends who thought they could be president and they're, <laughs> there's something wrong with them, oh, right? Whoa. Leader of the free There was world, already right? a lot and, wrong with me. That's the thing, Ken. <laughs> it was pretty hard to mess me up more at that point, you know? I got to invoke Al Franken's endorsement of your book here. If I can't pull it up in time, do you know it by heart? Yeah, I do. I do. Because Al texted it to me beforehand to make sure it was okay. Uh, (laughs) He said, you know, I thought that Jason Kander was one of the most together friends that I had, had it all figured out. And it turned out that he was amazingly fucked up with PTSD. Uh, And then he said, you know, amazing book. 
And Al sent me that and said, is this okay? And he sent it to me with this really funny picture of him with the book backwards and a mirror and his hair all messed up. And I said, if you do not tweet that word for word, as well as that picture, we are no longer friends. And uh, like a day later, he comes back and he's like, okay, my daughter says, it's okay if I tweet that, but that I have to use this picture. And I was like, <laughs> fine, whatever. I was like, I'm upset, but okay. And he's a more normal picture. Um, yeah. And the thing is, is like, one, the guy who was helping me promote the book on social media, he was like, his name is Rob. And he goes, that had a great response. We got to get more people to kind of like give you shit the way Al did. And I was like, dude, no one's going to be willing to do that. And he's like, why not? I was like, first of all, Al is a very close friend of mine. So he knows it won't bother me. I was like, two, there's literally no one else who can pull that off. Like there's no one else who can do that. And people will be like, ah, well, there he is. He's joking, but saying it's a great book, you know? So nobody else did it that way, but it got a great response. I, I, I know you know this, but everyone's PTSD takes a different shape. And one of the things that has struck me about yours and your battle to overcome it was just how solitary it was for so long, how lonely it was. We had Sebastian Younger on the show not long ago who wrote another great endorsement for your book. And he spends a lot of time writing about the importance of having a tribe in overcoming PTSD. You allude to it. I've, I, you're book is I'm just dog-eared like crazy. I've oh, got cool. it here. And you reference this same idea. I'm going to read the passage. Oh, I cribbed that part right out of Younger's book. I mean, I, you know, I didn't use it word for word because that's plagiarism, but his book <laughs> made a huge impression on me. Yeah. And I know so many vets for whom it, it just resonated so deeply with. Uh, you wrote, Native Americans made sure that everyone in the tribe understood what the warriors had experienced so that the warriors would never have to feel alone in the tribe. Not only did you feel alone coming home, but the nature of your deployment, unlike so many others, unlike mine, was solitary. How did you process that? Yeah, um, that's a good point. I mean, you know, I didn't go over with a unit. I was an individual augmentee, right? So I went over and I filled the spot and then I came back. And, and so that was a little bit of a lonely experience. Sebastian's endorsement of the book meant a ton to me. He was actually the first person I went to for a blurb. We know each other a little bit because, as you may know, um, out of his book came this effort to do these veterans town halls. And we haven't like made a big deal of this publicly because we haven't been able to do much with it yet. But that fledgling organization that is going, uh, or I should say more nascent organization that has started to do that needed a, a home. And so my organization, Veterans Community Project, has been the fiscal sponsor for that. And so just as things start to get up, which gave me the opportunity to have a, li a, a little bit of a relationship with Sebastian, who I really respect. And his book meant a lot to me. And I shared his book after I read it with uh, my fellow leaders of Veterans Community Project. You know, almost all of us are not just veterans, but veterans of the Kansas City PTSD Clinic. And, and so it's really important to us. And so that part of the book, yeah, it's, it's largely about that. And so when Sebastian initially was like, well, I don't really have time to do blurbs, but I will, I will read this. He read it in a day and was just super effusive in his praise. And it just, it really meant a ton to me. And that isolating thing is huge. And to me, it all goes back to the fact that this is the longest consecutive period in American history without some form of mandatory service. And so like when my grandfather came home, 
you know, all his buddies had just had the same experience. His brother had just had the same experience. And so you're just a lot less likely to feel alone, not just because you can talk to them, but because like everybody has somebody in their family who had just gone off to war and come home. And even in Vietnam for as horribly as we've, as we treated the Vietnam generation, at least they were, they were large in number. And, and so it, I think it is a very isolating experience for a lot of us. For me, yeah, man, I came home and my like out processing, you know, going back into the reserves was like, I went, I signed a piece of paper at Leavenworth and then like I, I cooled down, so to speak. I just sat around for a week and a half and then I went back to my job at a law firm. And, you know, so I'd gone from being an army intelligence officer in Afghanistan doing really important stuff. So now I'm like writing legal memos. It's not like I was a senior lawyer, right? Like I was right out of law school. So I'm just writing legal memos and stuff. And and it wasn't long. It was a few months before a partner who I really like came in and was explaining to me how important this thing I was writing was. You know, this is really important. And I remember I said, yeah, anybody going to die? And we both kind of knew in that moment, like, yeah, I'm probably not going to work here very long. And I didn't. And so... It was just hard to find people who could relate. And then, then I got into politics and, and I found little flashes of, you know, that we're all in this together and going for a cause. And like, you probably experienced this, that feeling in a campaign of like, hey, I, I, I got, I, I'm kind of with my team again. I got a team together. And so that it sometimes felt good. It never felt the same as the military, but I got little pieces of that. And then my best times were when I was you know, drill weekends or active duty periods, those were great. And then, and then I got out of the military altogether and, and then campaigning wasn't really doing it anymore. And it just, yeah, it became more and more isolating. And then after a while, I was in this position where I supposedly had all these friends, right? I mean, I had, I'd become famous and I went places and people knew me, but I felt very alone. And it had been so long I had forgotten that I didn't used to be like that. I didn't used to have night terrors every night. I didn't used to have, you know, this feeling that I was in danger all the time. I didn't used to have this like ever present stress that I could feel in my body. And since I had refused to accept the idea that it was connected to my service, I just started to resign myself to the idea that this is just how I am now because I had forgotten what it was like to not be that way. Yeah. Throughout that, lonely time there is one person who's at your side though who's your champion through it all and that's diana mm -hmm. and i am i'm so grateful that she's a voice in this book for a couple of reasons some of them are just instrumental i mean i think most people don't know anything about secondary ptsd i don't think most people know that most trauma victims never went to combat and she carries that that torch incredibly articulately uh, in in the book. This is another page I have dog-eared, and it speaks to me on a deeply personal level. You wrote, from the moment I'd met Diana, anything good that happened to me didn't feel real, didn't become real until I told her all about it. Um, that's how my wife and I are. We, we got married in our early 20s like you two. We went to to grad school together. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if that's one of the, the differences 
that separates you know someone like you from those who get sucked into the darkness and and don't come out you had someone you were alone but not entirely yeah no look uh, she saved my life right? there's no doubt about it and she kept me going through all those years she would be the first to tell you and she does write about this in the book that you know there's a lot of stuff that we would do over uh, differently including and she would too because we just didn't know like she di she didn't know how to deal with it when someone tells you that they are having suicidal thoughts. She didn't know how to handle somebody who is clearly continuing to uh, go after their career as self-medication. And so the way she put it is that when she had moments to maybe try and get through to me that it, maybe it was time to go get help, that instead she, instead of throwing me a life preserver, she jumped in next to me and started drowning with me. But that's because like we didn't know. And so, and she didn't know. And so I, her parts of the book are my favorite parts for a few reasons. One, I'm not the only best-selling author in the family. Like, she's a really good writer. Um, two, the secondary PTSD part, the getting that knowledge out to people, knowledge we didn't have even when I started therapy. My own therapist is the one who told me, you know, Diana may need to see somebody as well. And then probably the greatest reason that I think they're such important parts of the book, it's probably a tie between the exposing people to secondary PTSD the knowledge of it, not actual secondary PTSD. You will not get PTSD from reading this book. You might actually laugh. There are jokes in the book. I should say that. And then the third, uh, this other reason that I think is just as big of a deal is that, you know, I took on a challenge in writing this book that was really important to me, which is rather than allow myself to use any of the vocabulary that I had gained in therapy when describing the parts of my life that happened before therapy, I made myself write those portions by returning to the mindset that I had at that time. And the reason for that was, is that if I used a term like hypervigilance to describe how I was before I got therapy, well, someone who's never gone to therapy and who is deciding whether they need to or whether someone they know needs to, it's not going to be relatable. They're not going to be able to see themselves in it. But if instead I can return to that mindset and I can describe that as I knew people were coming to kidnap my family. I knew that how dangerous the world was. Well, that is going to ring true to a lot of people who are experiencing that, and they're going to have a better understanding of what it feels like to have PTSD. Now, the downside to doing that is that if you do that for several chapters in a row, and you're the only narrator, people are going to be like, what is wrong with this dude? Like, that is clearly not what's happening. So it's extremely helpful to have an occasional other narrator to come in and describe what they were seeing in my behavior so that you can get that full 360-degree picture and describe what effect my behavior was having on them. And so that's what Diana does so beautifully in the book. There is this pivot in the book when you start therapy. It is so lacking in, in jargon uh, before then and entirely relatable, which I know is your, your objective. What are you hearing from readers, vets in particular, as they pick up the book and reach out to you afterwards? I mean, that's been the most rewarding part of this. I mean, obviously the book's done very well. And so there's been a lot of nice things said about it. But the two groups that have meant the most to me are one, people who have sustained trauma. And I include in that veterans. And I include in that people who have been to therapy and people who haven't. There's obviously a lot of people who have reached out to me who have said, okay, I read the book and now I understand that I'm, I'm going to go get help. Or now I understand, uh, you know, what my husband or my wife is going through. And a lot of them are vets, a lot of them aren't. And it means a lot to me that whether they're vets or not, that they're able to get a lot out of this book. 
The other group that has meant a ton to me, maybe even more because it's because they've had such an impact on me, is trauma therapists. I have had so many people who are trauma therapists at the VA, trauma therapists, uh, you know, in private practice, who have told me that this book has made them a better therapist, that this book is going to be something that they're going to recommend to other therapists, and that this book is something that they are keeping in their office. And you know, a lot of some of them told me I've bought a bunch of copies because I'm planning to give it out to a lot of my patients. That means more to me than anything because, as you know from reading the book, my therapist, the VA Nick, is a huge figure in my life. I mean, he made a huge difference in my life. He's a big character in the book, and so to have that impact on that community is a big deal to me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You've got another book out there, um, Outside the Wire. Great book. And I just skimmed it, didn't reread it entirely for this interview, but I get the sense that it was written by a different person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's written by the guy um, from the first two acts, or the, or the second act of this book. Right. Uh, what was it like to finally write a book without um, having to worry about what Oppo is going to do with it? <laughs> yeah. I want to say it was easier or more fun, but it was just, this book was not more fun to write or easier because it was just, this book's just better. Um, Look Outside the Wire was also a bestseller and I'm proud of Outside the Wire. I stand by everything in it with the exception of the part where I'm like, good thing I don't have PTSD. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I was kind of trying to convince myself. Outside the Wire was a book where I, look, it was, I was about to run for president. And when you're about to run for president, every publisher is like, so, want to write a book? And, and most people are like, yeah. And most publishers were like, okay, so you're going to write a book about like, here's my vision for the country, because that's what everybody does. And a memoir that's basically a campaign pamphlet that's way too long. And I was like, I do not read those books. They are so boring. And I just didn't want to write one. So I, what I basically did is I took really well-tested vignettes, stories I had told in a lot of speeches, that were really resonated with people and were not just political speech. It was mostly just like, you know, life lessons and stuff. Cause I, you know, as secretary of state of Missouri, I spoke to a lot of young audiences, things like that. And they were valuable lessons. And so I think there's a lot of valuable lessons in that book. I think anybody who's interested in being involved in politics or as a political activist or, or in any kind of organizer can get a lot out of that book. This book is really different. This book is here's a no shit, no holds barred memoir uh, of what it's like to run for president with an undiagnosed psychological disorder. 
which is a book nobody's written. It's a thing that I'm sure has happened before, but no one else has copped to it and told the story. And and so I, I feel like this book is a real public service. Like I know this book is helping a lot of people. Outside the Wire is great. I'm happy that I got to write it and everything. Um, it's a much lighter read. But yeah, it was written by a person who was trying to just keep going and convince themselves like everything is okay. There's nothing in there I said that's not true. It's just that it was all the surface of me. It wasn't the, it wasn't deeper than that. Um, still valuable, but it wasn't like, okay, here's the whole deal about me, you know? Yeah. Um, well, one book is going to save lives. Uh, the other is going to, is going to provide a good, good roadmap, some good inspiration for uh, political neophytes yeah. um, in politics. As you well know, a lot of people attach their fortunes to yours, especially at your level. How did that factor in, if at all, to your decision to back away? I ask because I I think so many politicians out there keep going on inertia, not because they have something to offer, not because they love the job, but there's just this machine that propels you forward. And you must have been caught up in that as well. Oh, absolutely. It's it's a, such an insightful question, and you have to have had the experience that you and I have had to to ask it, right? And that is that, you know, we all, for those who, who need a reference point, everybody knows the small business owner whose business has been successful. They employ 15, 20 people, but they just don't like doing it anymore, you know? And they they could probably sell it, and they could go do something else, or maybe even they could be done they could retire you know and they don't and they don't for a really really valid reason which is there's other people in the business are counting on them if they, if they sell it they don't know what will happen to it they don't know what will happen to those families you know my dad had a had a business like that when i was young and then he did sell it and then a lot of those people lost their jobs and it really upset him and and but it weighs very heavily on you you know i mean we hear small business owners all the time talk about how like look i have a responsibility here i mean i have a lot of people counting on me it's a real thing. And we underestimate how at a certain level that really happens with politics. I mean, it was really two things for me. I mean, first I decided that I couldn't run for president. I had to run for mayor instead. I didn't publicly say why at that point, but you know, I was making this choice. I didn't even tell my team the real reason. I, I even tried to convince myself that that wasn't the reason, but that was the reason. It's just, I was exhausted. I couldn't do it anymore. And that really one of the ways that my PTSD manifested was I was I constantly felt like I was disappointing everyone around me, even though oftentimes that was objectively not the case. I just felt like such a disappointment. And a lot of that was my own projection. But so the idea of disappointing these people who had dedicated so much to my political fortunes, it's one of the things that I've never been able to understand about some politicians. I mean, there are politicians like any other line of work who are just shitty bosses, politicians who just, they're not good to the people who work for them. And I've fundamentally never been able to understand. I'm not trying to be like, what a good guy I am. I'm just, I'm saying what I've never fundamentally understood about that is that this is not like other, you know, other jobs. I mean, this is like all these people who work for you on a campaign, they are there solely dedicated to the proposition that you get a job with no guarantee that they get a job at the end of it. That's like, how do you not feel indebted to those people all the time, right? 
And that's how I felt. And when you put on top of that, that I felt indebted to everyone all the time because I felt like I hadn't done enough and I had this you know, huge quest for redemption going on as a means to make myself feel better that wasn't working. It was really hard to be like, I'm, I'm not going to run for president. I'm going to run for this, which required a smaller team. My guy, Abe, uh, who ran all my stuff, said to me at one point during that, he said, you know, not a lot of people in American history have had the chance to decide not to run for president, which is true. It was a big, a big thing, and I consider it a privilege. But boy, it wasn't a choice for the people who ended up not able to do it with me. And then when I said, I'm not going to run for mayor either, and I'm going to opt out of everything, you know, I had people with me who, I had some people who working for me had been the only thing they'd ever done in their career, and they'd done it for a decade. And they've all turned out, you know, they're all in great places and, and everything. But, but I felt like I was letting those people down enormously. So it was really difficult. The other thing was that when I made the jump from state-level politics to national politics, I did something that, and I, I don't know that I deserve any credit for this. I, I did this because strategically it was the best thing for me because I happened to have the best people. But I got the opportunity to do something that most don't. Usually when you go from like, Secretary of State or something like I was to running for the U.S. Senate. What happens is is that the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee or whatever the Republican version is, you know, if you're doing that, they kind of say, okay, uh, now that you're doing that, here's the here's the A team, here's who you're going to have, right? Um, it's like you know when I don't know, like you you have a band and you do well with your band and then you win American Idol and they're like, here's your real band now, right? That's kind of how it usually works. In my case. I knew that the people I had were the best and that they weren't going to give me anybody who was better. And the other thing I knew was that there was this thing that goes on in that circuit in national politics where if they give you your own campaign, they give you campaign people who are their people, but there's tension between the organization that runs this stuff in Washington and your local level. And if you have the person as wonderful as they may be, who knows they're going to get their next job, whether you win or lose, from the organization in D.C., well, that's where their loyalty is going to be, right? And I made the calculation of, no, I want the person whose loyalty is going to be to me because they're my friend. And that was a big, crucial turning point in me having those kind of relationships because keeping you know Abe and Kellen and people like that as my central team you know, and the other people who we added to it, they were wonderful and they fit in great and everything. And I'm not knocking them in any way, but keeping Abe and Kellen there, that really set the tone and the culture for what that campaign was going to be. And then when it turned into later, basically a, a quasi-president, well, a presidential campaign in waiting that was really just running. Well, I still had that same team, but now I had built a team through the Senate race and we were, we were team candor. And, and I, so I ended up with those very close relationships. Whereas usually what happens is, is like, you're the lead singer and they keep giving you different backup bands. And that's just not what happened for me. So I, it's hard for me to speak to what happens on the other side of the aisle, because actually, Ken, I think that I had the unique experience of having something that happens almost never on my side of the aisle to the level it did for me. Well, you certainly had an A-team. There probably isn't a, a, a Democrat of voting age who hasn't seen your gun ad, yeah. and that was inspiring to me. Uh, we we hired Mark Putnam after that for my campaign. Um, I think a few people did. I think. Yeah, I think a few people did. Um, yeah. Last time we chatted, I was nudging you like just about everybody else in your orbit, and allow this to be my apology. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't apologize. To jump back in, you know, we were – 
looking at Missouri and the state of the race and, you know, the panic was setting in. And you made this comment to me that Missouri is a white man factory, <laughs> which I don't know if you remember that, but- I said that, that's funny. I don't remember that. I took it to mean, look, there's no shortage of middle-aged white dudes willing to run for office in places like Missouri. What's extraordinary about that insight is the Im- implicit rejection of this idea, which almost every politician at your level internalizes, that you're indispensable. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. That you know you are a, a one man history maker, and you don't buy that uh, about yourself. I used to. It used to be my central idea of who I was. It was really the only identity I had for myself that I was destined to do this, and that I had kind of given into the idea that I was destined to live a short life of consequence that was not really experienced by me, but seemed to have been really important to other people. And now I'm in a very different place in my life where I'm like you know, I think I actually have earned the right to enjoy my life. And I'm doing that. And well, I mean, you know, I coached my son's little league team since stopping running for office, since getting therapy, you know, my wife and I've had a second child. I have a daughter. I'm playing baseball again. I have a double header tonight, like not softball, like baseball. Like I'm enjoying my life. I have this job I love. And to your point, when I look at politics, it's interesting how some of my friends who I came up with, and they don't mean this in a, in a bad way. And they, they usually don't say it out loud, but I, I get the sense from some of them that sometimes they get frustrated that there is a strong desire often by the electorate, particularly on the left, exclusively on the left, to nominate more people of color, more women. And that white men, you know, don't always have a place at that table, or at least they don't have the inside track to that table that they used to. And I'm not saying like, oh, what a great guy I am. I'm just like, you know, this makes a lot of sense to me. I, I'm just like, I don't think we've been exactly crushing it, white men, over the last 20 or whatever years. And look, I think I have a unique experience to bring to things. And someday I may run for president. But I don't have any interest in it right now. And I don't look at the field, the potential field, you know, if Biden weren't to run or whatever, and go, you know, what's lacking from that is me. Like that, I absolutely need to be in there. Like, I just don't. Like, I look at it and I go, yeah, I think I'd do a pretty good job. Am I 100% sure that I would in every way do a better? No, I don't. And like, when people talk to me about stuff like accepting cabinet positions, I'm like, well, I really like my son's group of friends. And I really like living here at home in Kansas City. I like working out at 10 a.m. if I want to. You know, I like that stuff. So I'm going to keep doing that. And then somebody will say to me, but, uh, but you could make such a difference there. And I'm like, yeah, but would the difference I make be so much more than the difference somebody else makes that I should derail my life to do it? I don't think so. And so, you know, it's kind of a liberating thing when you realize that. Oh, I think that is a great note to end on. It's not often that a politician ends an interview with that kind of real humility. So thank you. (laughs) If you still consider yourself a politician. Hey, I'm not sure I do, but once you can fake (laughs) that level of humility, I mean, you're really good at this. So yeah. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Um, Thanks, Jason. Been great having you on. Thank you. Thanks again to Jason for joining me. Make sure to check out his book, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. All his royalties from the book go to the Veterans Community Project. You can find a link to the book in the show description. And you can find Jason on Instagram and Twitter at at Jason Cantor. 
Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of Seven Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.